Welcome to Policy Outsider, presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government. I'm Alex Morse. Medicaid is a critical component of the nation's and New York's healthcare systems. In New York, Medicaid covers nearly 8 million people, half of all births, and approximately two-thirds of people receiving nursing home care and services and supports for people with mental health or disability needs. In all, New York's Medicaid budget is over $90 billion. Given the importance, size, and scope of Medicaid, how can New York improve its healthcare delivery and achieve better health outcomes? The state aims to achieve better health outcomes through a new Medicaid waiver request that will allow the state to research, implement, and demonstrate innovative and cost-effective delivery methods to improve health outcomes. New York currently operates under what's known as an 1115 waiver, a waiver type that has broad authority to allow states to test new methods of healthcare delivery. New York is now seeking to amend that waiver so that it can focus more specifically on health equity issues. Joining us to dive into New York's Medicaid waiver request are two health policy professionals with a combined decades of health research and administration experience. Courtney Burke, Senior Fellow for Health Policy at the Rockefeller Institute, and Amir Basiri, Acting Director of New York's Medicaid Program and Deputy Commissioner for the Office of Health Insurance Programs. Courtney and Amir will touch on the importance of Medicaid waivers for research and demonstration, as well as what health equity issues and health outcomes New York hopes to achieve through this new waiver request. Coming up next. Hi, and good morning. I'm joined by Courtney Burke, Senior Fellow for Health Policy at the Rockefeller Institute, and Amir Basiri, Acting Director of New York's Medicaid Program and Deputy Commissioner for the Office of Health Insurance Programs. Good morning. Thank you as well. Amir, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here today to talk about the state's new pending Medicaid waiver. Amir, I know you began your career working at various nonprofits um, in the area of social determinants of health, which is also a big focus of this waiver, and then worked as an Empire Fellow in the governor's office, a senior policy advisor for health, before transitioning to chief of staff to the Medicaid director, then deputy director, and now the acting Medicaid director. So this waiver is a big deal, Amir. Uh, Why don't we start by having you give us a high-level overview of what you hope to see this waiver achieve? and perhaps the dollar figure ask as well. Absolutely, and thank you for the introduction. Um, As Courtney mentioned, the 1115 waiver amendment, which we are calling the New York Health Equity Reform Waiver, or NIA for short, uh, is essentially the Medicaid program's strategic plan to address health equity in New York. The waiver seeks approximately $13.52 billion over a five-year demonstration period to systematically redesign the delivery system under a health equity lens that seeks to change the way care is delivered and paid for here in New York Medicaid. The central goal of the waiver is to reduce health disparities, advance health equity, and support the delivery of social care, specifically building upon the lessons learned under our prior waiver, uh, the DISRIP waiver, to address some of the unprecedented 
and extraordinary impacts that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on vulnerable populations and exacerbating health disparities. That's the central goal, and we aim to achieve that goal through various strategies, which are outlined in our amendment to the federal government. There are sub-strategies, but the first of those strategies is to build a more resilient and flexible integrated delivery system that achieves the goal of reducing health disparities, advancing health equity, and the delivery of social care. The second strategy is to strengthen our and enrich our transitional housing supportive services and alternatives to homelessness and institutional settings of care. The third strategy is to redesign the system, specifically around workforce development to improve quality, advance health equity, and address existing shortages, which we're feeling an insane uh, pressure on currently. So the waiver will be very timely to address a lot of the workforce challenges that are existing in the market. And the last strategy is to create a statewide digital health and telehealth infrastructure. At the highest of levels, that's sort of the underlying goal and the four strategies in which we expect to achieve that goal of reducing health disparities, advancing health equity in the Medicaid program. But underneath each one of these strategies, there's a lot of sub components and programmatic changes that we hope will help get us to to that end state at the end of the five years. That's great. So why don't we dig into those four areas a, a little bit more based on what you said, and we'll start with the first one around building a more re- resilient and integrated delivery system to promote health equity. How exactly will that work? Great question, Courtney. Uh, this strategy is the uh, the most funding under the waiver is allocated for this strategy. And the reason for that is that we are establishing new entities in the delivery system, and I'll go through those. And we're allocating a lot of funding in this area for advanced value-based payment, uh, specifically for health-related social needs investments. And I'll be, I'd love you just to pause there and say advanced value-based payment. Um, I'm sure we have some listeners who are familiar with the term value-based payment if you could just explain what it means and then what is the difference between value-based payment and advanced value-based payment? Yes, absolutely. So value-based payment. So traditionally in healthcare, we pay in a fee-for-service environment in which a provider is paid for the delivery of a service to a member. And what we've learned over the last decade or so is that that doesn't always lead to better outcomes. It may lead to unnecessary healthcare utilization, and it is not really innovative in the sense that a provider can only be paid so long as they see an individual. So what value-based payment aims to do is change those incentives to, to say that we will pay you regardless of whether you see the member on a volume basis, and more so as to whether you're improving the health or the outcomes of that member or reducing the total cost of care necessary to, to to deliver services to the member while keeping uh, costs as efficient as possible. So what is advanced value-based payment or what are we calling advanced value-based payment is really create the incentives for managed care organizations, uh, community-based organizations, healthcare providers to come together to meaningfully address harder to reach populations and meaningful BBP. We think the opportunities are there to 
create innovation and reduce the total cost of care of caring for those members while improving outcomes and bringing in new providers, social care providers or community-based organizations who may not be traditional Medicaid billing providers through the 1115 authorities. That's really the innovation we're hoping to seek. If you aren't participating in the Medicaid program, it's very difficult to pay you. However, if we use value-based payment as the source of innovation, we can encourage managed care organizations and our new social determinant uh, health networks to not only pay community-based organizations, but to treat people with more services that they're not currently available under the traditional Medicaid benefit. Things like housing supports, nutritional services, uh, innovative transportation services. Thing, those things are not traditionally uh, in the state plan amendment, which is our authorizing document with the federal government as to what is covered and not covered. So this waiver really presents a unique and extraordinary opportunity to really advance the way care is delivered and incorporate social care into uh, how we deliver care to our members. So how are we going to do that? The waiver really starts with the establishment of health equity regional organizations. And these are intended to be regional planning entities to incentivize regional collaboration amongst various stakeholders across the delivery system and incorporate their voices and perspectives into the planning effort for a particular region. They're going to lay the groundwork and develop uh, annual health equity regional needs assessment. Think about a needs assessment on steroids, for lack of a better phrase, that really brings together all the providers, health and non-health, in a room to establish a plan and a needs assessment for a region to identify the gaps in terms of where are the health equity gaps, where are the resources, whether it be housing inventory or strong supportive community-based organizations, and where are the gaps in terms of the populations or parts of a region that are not receiving services for whatever reason, whether it's a rural area and there's no access to healthcare, or there are strong measures of ongoing disparities for certain populations, uh, like the chronically homeless or the criminally injustice-involved populations. So these heroes, as we call them, will establish a plan and a needs assessment that will really lay the groundwork for everything that comes after it. Um, they're also intended to provide you know, regional collaboration amongst stakeholders. They are not intended to result in any duplication of efforts, really rather to augment existing planning efforts and bring it to scale under the context of the waiver. So once those heroes are established and the plans are laid out, uh, we then have the second new entity in the delivery system, one that will play a pivotal, pivotal role in measuring success and, and helping achieve the goals of the waiver. And those are the social determinant health networks, or SDHNs as we call them. Uh, we're allocating almost a billion dollars for these entities. And what they are is a network of community-based organizations and social care providers that serve as a coordinated referral network to provide health-related social needs interventions to our members. And this is really a lesson learned from uh, the prior amendment, DISRIP, 
we were able to achieve a lot of value-based payment, uh, but we were not able to successfully and uh, meaningfully pay CBOs for their efforts in taking care of Medicaid member. And so what these networks will do is they will bring um, a range of community-based organizations together with one lead entity who will serve as the primary contracting vehicle with a managed care plan and also serve as the vehicle to gather more health equity-related information and demographics information on our members to identify what the needs are and how to serve them. And then furthermore, when we identify those needs, are they being referred for services and what is happening after those services are referred? And that's really the role the FBHMs play. They're, we're hoping that these are not temporary entities like the heroes, which may be, but these SDHNs are intended to be permanent fixtures in the delivery system as really the vehicle for having CBOs participate in the Medicaid delivery system and payment system. The SDHNs will be responsible for paying community-based organizations for the services that they deliver, and they will also be responsible for engaging in that advanced value-based payment with managed care plans targeted on subpopulations and vulnerable populations and being held to meaningful standards of health improvement. We are thinking currently and in our discussions with CMS that for every hero in each region, there would be a corresponding social determinant health network in that region. And we want that for alignment, for attribution, to make sure that we're bringing providers together, uh, collaboration together, and we want them to be able to do referral management and fiscal administration in a meaningful way such that when the waiver is gone uh, after five years, that these entities will have the, the basis to be able to enter into these arrangements after the waiver funding is no longer allocated. Those feed into another strategy, which is the advanced value-based payment, and a bulk of the money in the waiver is here, about $6.8 billion, which is a significant, significant investment and really uh, speaks to how the state and the department is prioritizing VVP as a vehicle for creating and instilling better, better delivery of services that we believe will result in better outcomes and reduce cost of care. The last strategy is a subcomponent, and it's really treated separately because of how unique of a, a population it is in the authorities that we're requesting, which is to allow and ensure meaningful access for the criminally injustice involved populations prior to discharge from incarceration. So you may have seen this. Uh, many other states have also uh, put this proposal forward under their 1115 authority, which is to allow for in-reach services or for Medicaid-funded services while an individual is incarcerated leading into their discharge. And this is really to serve as a safety net as people come out of incarceration so that they don't end up back in the hospital or fall through the cracks of the system, but rather they have access to comprehensive care, coordination of care. There's a health plan there to help them with their discharge and make sure they're receiving services, having access to their medications if they're routine or chronic uh, need medications, and bringing them into 
uh, the the delivery system and such that you know a health plan is responsible to care for these individuals as opposed to them going into fee for service, which is practically what happens happens today. So that is what rounds out our strategy one, which is probably sixty five percent of all the funding we're asking for is to really redesign the health system to focus on populations this way while bringing in new social care providers to help meet those goals. That's an incredibly helpful explanation of the first goal and exactly how they would see this uh, playing out and how community-based organizations would be more involved, how some of those organizations would be in transportation, nutrition, and housing was one of the ones that you mentioned. So I think that's a good segue to bring us to the second goal, which is a, which is about housing, strengthening, enriching, supportive housing for people. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that goal. Absolutely. Uh, $1.57 billion is being allocated for strengthening our and enriching our transitional housing services and creating alternatives to care for the chronically homeless and those uh, who are in long-term institutional settings. And... This is really building on something we know works and has a return on investment, which was demonstrated in the first MRT from our supportive housing efforts for for higher acuity populations. This is a significant expansion of that success with a distinct focus on populations transitioning out of institutional care, like a nursing home, uh, into a community-based setting to age in place. And it really starts at the top again with the heroes um, and their work coordinating existing regional partners and identifying the housing inventory within a particular region and helping map high utilizers and institutional settings to those resources. And if there are gaps, putting in uh, the investments and interventions to meet those gaps. A lot of supportive housing addresses the capital need and the operating from various federal, city, local funding streams. But the role of integrator and connecting those efforts with other social care and health delivery providers isn't happening on a statewide basis or at a scale to really support the broader supportive housing effort. So once the heroes identify the resources and inventory within a particular region and where gaps are needed, a social determinant of health network will then begin identifying members, matching Medicaid data with homelessness or other institutional data, uh, populations that could transition to the community. We would provide funding for the value-based payment, for the infrastructure and enriched housing, uh, transitional housing services, which are in place today, but would be augmented in a very, very significant way. Things like medical respite programming, uh, street homeless programming, community transitional services, tenancy supports, including first last month of rent and and other supportive services outside of paying for room and board. And then lastly, referral and coordination of related services and benefits, really the social care providers coming in for for other additional services to wrap around uh, the needs of these members. And this builds on the work, as I said, that we have in place today, but we have not really scaled and provided a significant infusion of funding for in this way that we think will have a meaningful impact and really target very vulnerable populations that could live safely in the community but are not living safely in the community 
for various reasons, including capacity and resources uh, of the providers in a particular geography. So we're very, very excited about this. Um, we wanted to go further with this uh, strategy and with the funding. CMS uh, tempered our expectations, uh, but did did offer support with with the goal and the funding under the goal. And other states are following suit as well. So this is a huge, huge investment uh, that we're really excited about, um, and we hope will have a very lasting impact for for very high high need populations. Yeah, precisely. You had mentioned that some of the populations that are being targeted for this advanced advanced value-based payment are exactly those kinds of populations that could be vulnerable, and uh, especially if they don't have supportive housing or any type of housing to transition. So, and to that point, Courtney, I mean, we're always seeking opportunities to expand. You know, the supportive housing availability, the status site units throughout the state, augmenting the existing programs, but. This will be, I think, one of the more meaningful aspects of the waiver and one in which we hope will demonstrate ROI across larger populations to make more meaningful investments post-waiver in the availability of supportive housing. Great. And I would say another critical thing for the waiver to be successful is what underlies all of this, which is the health and human services workforce. So I know that goal three is about uh, system redesign, but it is also largely focused on the workforce. Absolutely. I mean, this is the biggest problem in healthcare right now for all providers, uh, both for the community-based organizations and obviously for our health infrastructure and facility providers like hospitals and nursing homes. And we are allocating $3 billion to workforce under the waiver. It's segmented into two distinct buckets. The first of which is really investments in our safety net hospitals and nursing homes who were just decimated um, during the COVID-19 pandemic and whose businesses were fundamentally changed. Uh, and we're trying to right-size those uh, for, for those providers by making very large investments in workforce and quality um, as they rebuild from the COVID-19 pandemic. So the first strategy under that or the first you know investment under that strategy of workforce is 1.5 billion dollars for a quality incentive pool for distressed hospitals and nursing homes and it will have a distinct quality focus on workforce and staffing um, that would be allocated 300 million dollars each year uh, we haven't defined the specifics but we are we are in the process of working through that with CMS right now and workforce will be a critical, meaningful measure in how we distribute and measure the impact of that funding. The remaining $1.5 billion is what we more traditionally think of workforce development and training. Really funding to address longstanding shortages, um, including those that were exacerbated by the pandemic, to make the healthcare and social care field more attractive to workers provide opportunities for advancement, including recruitment and retention, uh, development of career pathways, training, and expansion of, of opportunities and jobs like community health workers. Having individuals transition from, you know, being a health home worker to a community health worker to a peer specialist, creating those advancement ladders is very critical as part of this waiver. And we intend to fund, you know, the WEOs or workforce uh, investment organizations um, to help assist with that. 
as well as create standardized trainings throughout the state, depending on the region, to address things that overcome racial and implicit bias. We feel that the HERO plan, the needs assessment plan, back to the top, will help identify needs and gaps in workforce depending on the region. And we will make those investments based on that established need for each region, whether it be, you know, downstate, we have a greater need for community health workers and peer support specialists. Upstate, we may have more needs on uh, healthcare professionals training, whether it be nurses or another field. And we're working very diligently to make sure that we have the flexibility to make differing investments depending on what providers, subject matter experts, and workforce development organizations identify as the critical and biggest need for each region. So I wish we had more funding for this bucket, uh, knowing what we're dealing with right now, but $3 billion is still meaningful, and we want to make sure we, we separate the needs of our uh, inpatient and uh, facility-based provider with the community-based providers. And so we've allocated the funding in that way. That's great. And I think the fourth platform and goal that you mentioned is also critical to all of this. It really underlies the workforce, the housing, the ability of the networks to communicate with each other, and a whole new way of delivering care, which people are much more comfortable with now after the pandemic, which is digital care and telehealth delivery. So yes. if you could talk a little bit more about that last platform. Yes, absolutely. While it's the least funded platform, which is the, the statewide digital health and telehealth infrastructure, it's $300 million over the five years. It is still critical. And as opposed to the prior uh, strategies where we're either funding uh, a social determinant of health network, a managed care organization, a hero, this funding is directly for providers to meaningfully participate uh, in telehealth and provision you know, the IT necessary uh, to train and support their workforce to provide telehealth. Um, and this is really all about patient access and creating more opportunities for patient access throughout the state. Things like telehealth kiosks and homeless shelters, um, enabling community health workers to assist members in utilizing telehealth, whether they're in a community-based or institutional setting, and giving access to tablets to members and providers uh, so that they have various ways to receive the services and care that they need. Um, we are also looking at and allocating grant funds for remote patient monitoring, uh, data platforms and interoperability so that the telehealth utilization can be shared and measured across state, uh, patient-facing tools, virtual care models, and assistive technology. And so while it's the smallest funding bucket, we think it will have a major, major impact to advance what we've seen over the last three or four years, which is a massive increase in widespread adoption of telehealth as a modality to deliver care. That's great. Uh, very helpful to hear about the four areas, and it's a very ambitious plan. So one of my questions is, how will you know this is working? How will you measure the progress in some of these areas? That is a fantastic question and something we're in the process of discussing with the federal government uh, right now. They are very interested in this. And if we look to what they've done in other states, we can see that they're very interested in the total funding that states are allocating for health-related 
uh, social needs interventions. They're interested in funding for community-based organizations from the Medicaid dollar, which we're thinking of as part of our measurement. And the number of assessments and social care screenings that are followed by referrals and delivery of care by uh, community-based and healthcare organizations, which are all things that we're negotiating with CMS right now. At the end of the waiver period, I think what we're hoping we can effectively measure is the unmet need pre-waiver and how that need was met with health-related social needs interventions and funding and ultimately what that resulted in from healthcare spending and quality outcomes for our members. Did we improve the physical, mental health, or social care needs outcomes for our members with these investments? Can we stratify and measure uh, our own Medicaid member data for health equity measures that we can't do today? And these, some of these are 2DB defined, but we wanna be able to stratify all of our data by race, ethnicity, language, geography, disability status, sexual orientation, uh, and many other ways to really look at everything in a more granular way and measure it differently. So the details are still to be determined, but those are the types of conversations we're in the process of having with CMS. And we're comfortable with many of the things they've approved in other states and really want to keep the focus on the health-related social needs interventions, how much funding is going towards them, uh, because we believe those investments are what's going to lead to the better and higher quality outcomes for members. That's great to, to understand what the endpoint is. And so I'm curious about the shorter term. You mentioned the negotiations with the federal government. I have some experience in a prior life uh, being part of negotiations with the federal government, and I know it gets very detailed and it goes back and forth for quite some time. So I'm guessing our listeners are wondering, how is that going? Any predictions on when things may come to a resolution? It is going very well from my standpoint. As you said, Courtney, these negotiations do take time. They get in the weeds. There's a lot of back and forth with questions as to how we're going to do this or how we're going to measure this and what this funding is for and what that funding is for. We are having conversations with the federal government weekly. I want to thank all the listeners for their advocacy to the federal government as to, as to the importance of this waiver, because I think there is widespread understanding of how important this is for the Medicaid program and the delivery system. And so I think from a negotiation standpoint, I think we are getting into the meat as we speak. There's an understanding between us and CMS that we are seeking approval as quickly as humanly possible. Um, we are certainly working our way towards a full approval by April 1st, and I think that's the track we're on. Um, you know, there's been a lot of questions on the health equity-related measures and how we are going to measure um, success for the waiver, and I think that's the last sort of hurdle we have to cross, and some of that is driven by by CMS, and their their feedback to us has been to look towards the other states um, in, in ways that they're being measured for success or what they're being authorized to do, which gives me a lot of um, optimism, given that those other states really replicated what New York has been uh, working towards under this waiver for the last several years. So I, I think uh, we are on track 
for an April 1st uh, approval date, um, barring anything unexpected. Well, that's really good to hear that things are progressing. Uh, you mentioned that CMS requested that you look at other states and some of the things that they're doing. I know yeah. that both Massachusetts and Oregon recently had similar waivers approved. Was there any aspects of their waiver applications that you found particularly interesting where you think New York might steal some of their good ideas? Well, they stole from us, Courtney. <laughs> so I'm going to put that plug in. I know Brett Friedman would appreciate it uh, because our waiver really, uh, while while we are in the process of negotiating it now, the development of it has been underway for the last several years. Um really with meaningful stakeholder engagement, which is why there's so much excitement uh, for, from various providers with respect to the waiver. But there are many things in the other two waivers that you mentioned that we like, um, including in Oregon, you know, the specific provisions to allow for health-related social needs benefits like housing and nutritional services to members is very positive and optimistic, including uh, because we have replicated some of that in our waiver. We go a little bit further, um, but that approval really establishes a framework for for what we're trying to do here in New York. I think Massachusetts, um, their provider incentive pool, the funding they have for their distressed providers like hospitals is very, very attractive uh, for us in the sense that it lays, it, it integrates very meaningful and high priority quality measurement, whether it's maternal health or uh, health equity related needs assessment for members in, in coordination with supplemental funding. And that is a framework we're very, very interested in and CMS has pushed us towards for, for some of our uh, quality incentive programming. And that's something we're likely to replicate uh, given its focus on quality staffing. Uh, workforce development and health equity, in addition to providing critical funding for many of our distressed providers that were um, turned upside down throughout the pandemic. Um, so those are two major elements, one in Oregon, one in Massachusetts, that I think you will see in the final terms and conditions uh, negotiated in our waiver. Uh, they went a little bit further than we did with respect to coverage expansion. Um, they included elements of coverage expansion in their waivers, things like coverage, continuous coverage for children zero to six in, uh, in Oregon and expansion of the Medicaid buy-in program for workers with, uh, for people working with disabilities. Those are things that, uh, are likely not to be in our waiver, but are still of interest. Um, you know, maybe down the line, once we get this 11, 15 approved, we'll We'll look to another 1115 waiver for, for those coverage expansion related um, authorities. But where we're focused really is on redesign of the, the delivery system and changing the way that we pay for and care for our Medicaid members. So you've given us a really wonderful overview today, Amir. Thank you for the time. But one more question before we let you go, which is, so many different things you spoke about today really changed the way the delivery system looks. It uh, five years from now, much more integrated, I think, is your goal and resilient um, and really integrating health and human services more so than today. If you could describe what you think is that ideal vision or at least a better version of today's uh, health and human services system, what, what would that be? 
That's a fantastic question. I don't know. Our listeners may not be as familiar with this with this chart or visualization, but the way I like to think about it and something that I think of when measuring success is if you were to look at uh, uh, a visual, a chart put forward by, I believe, the Brookings Institute or another uh, research institution that measured the top 20 OECD countries and what they spend on healthcare versus social care as a percentage of GDP. And on that chart, you'll see that the U.S., by far and away, spends the most on healthcare um, as a ratio of healthcare to social care than these other countries. And unfortunately, uh, we have the worst outcomes as compared to those 20 countries. And so what I would hope is after this waiver is, uh, after the five-year demonstration period, New York Medicaid would have a higher ratio of social to health spending as compared to what it has today. And we believe that will lead to better outcomes. And that's really what we're hoping to achieve under this waiver is to bring social care into the delivery system and the payment system, which we hope to do uh, through the strategies under the waiver. I would also hope, uh, Courtney, sorry to keep going, but data systems and interoperability uh, is a huge, huge priority for for me um, and, and the Medicaid team to really ensure that we have longstanding and permanency with respect to social care data exchange to enrich our existing member, member data uh, with health equity and demographics information, uh, which will be a critical measure of success so that we can stratify the health equity needs of our members, as well as measure uh, the health equity needs improvement uh, with our existing clinical and claims data to really drive innovation on, on outcomes. You mentioned that this waiver is a five-year period. What happens at the end of five years? If the program proves to be successful, do you have to reapply for funding? Do you have to get a new waiver or does it, is it a great statute? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it really depends, but if the waiver is successful and we are meeting meaningful goals and meeting the terms and conditions, there's a number of things that could happen. One is that the state may choose to continue some of these authorities with its own funding, uh, post waiver. So right now what the waiver provides is a lot of incentive funds for innovative, um, interventions or innovation and delivery. And if those are tested and they're positive, ideally, you know, managed care plans will want to keep making those investments because the total cost of care for, for treating people is lower, which means they can make more, save more money as well as pay more for uh, the social care providers and the delivery system. So ideally it would continue organically with how we incentivize payments in the delivery system. CMS may say, oh, all these other states have had similar investments and interventions and in, in health-related social needs interventions. We're going to make this a permanent fixture uh, as part of the, the approvable state plan amendments, which means in our agreement with you, we will recognize these interventions as things we will match in how you pay for, for Medicaid providers. So there's a range of ways that can go. Um, from the state's perspective, in terms of statute, you mentioned statute, there are certain authorities or flexibilities that we would have under the waiver that we could put 
permanently into state law, whether it's related to regulation, surveillance, um, licensing. Uh, so those are the types of things that will change. But it is intended to be a demonstration. And ideally, if it's evaluated and we're successful in implementation, these are investments providers and, and health plans will want to make moving forward because the, the evidence will suggest that it's better for them and it's better for people. That's wonderful. Incredibly ambitious agenda. Uh, you are very articulate in explaining it, and we really appreciate you taking the time today. We look forward to seeing what happens over the next few months. We won't hold you to the April 1st deadline, but uh, maybe we'll check back in with you in a few months to see how things are going. So thank, thank you again you for your... the opportunity. Yes, thank you for the opportunity, and I hope to do this again with you in a better in a better format, so I could be telling you about the success of the waiver and what we were able to accomplish. I look forward to that. Thank you again, Amir. Thank you. Thanks to Courtney Burke, Senior Fellow for Health Policy at the Rockefeller Institute, and Amir Basiri, New York's Acting Medicaid Director and Deputy Commissioner for the Office of Health Insurance Programs, for taking the time to share insights into the importance of New York's Medicaid program and how redesigning the health care delivery infrastructure aims to address health equity issues and ensure everyone has access to quality health care throughout the state. If you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share. It will help others find the podcast and help us deliver the latest in public policy research. All of our episodes are available for free wherever you stream your podcast. Transcripts are also available on our website. Special thanks to Rockefeller Institute staff Joel Torado, Heather Trella, and Laura Schultz for their contributions to this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Morris. Until next time. Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following at Rockefeller Inst, that's Rockefeller I-N-S-T, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu.